Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Negotiation. On today's show, I am thrilled to be speaking with a very good friend of mine, Cyril Ebersweiler, general partner at SOSV, the Accelerator VC, who is best described as a visionary punk. We begin our conversation talking about how he ended up in China, first as an intern with Carrefour, later becoming their first e-commerce project manager all the way back in 2002, predating the first iPhone by five years, just to put that in perspective for you. Fast forward to 2009, which is when we first met in the northeast of China in a coastal city called Dalian. This is also where he met Sean O'Sullivan, the now managing director of SOSV, which back then was more of a super angel fund or family office fund, whichever you prefer. I asked Cyril to tell about why the two of them decided to start investing in early stage tech in China and what that conversation was like when even Silicon Valley was in its adolescence. We talk about spinning up accelerators in China as an investment model and why Shenzhen was the best place in the world to launch a hardware accelerator due in large part to the Shenzhen movement which we explain in the show. We also talk about the impact crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter have had on the world of hardware startups, ending with a prediction of where the next biggest company will come from. Enjoy. What we wanted to do was to convince the entrepreneurs, and actually the parents even, and uh, I, I seriously had calls with parents of uh, applicants you know, to, to the accelerator, and provide them with some sort of uh, you know, cocoon where um, they could just uh, you know, have some money, uh, then, uh, then have a group of people, and then, you know, building sets of resources essentially uh, to support um, their first step uh, development. And so, you know, uh, popularizing the fact that being an entrepreneur is okay. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Cyril, my old friend, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. You and I go way back, but not nearly as long as you and China go back. You first came to China in 2002, is that correct? Yeah, as a professional, actually, that's, uh, that's as a correct. But uh, I, uh, I was traveling to China since uh, 1998. So when you came back to China, uh, this time professionally, I, it was like 2002 when you started with, with, with Carrefour. Um, talk a little bit about those early days and how you ended up with Carrefour. Yeah, so um, I got quite, quite lucky here because um, as I was uh, having multiple um, students' jobs, if you will, um, I happened to meet with uh, one of the board members of, of Carrefour. Uh, and uh, he uh, you know, uh, introduced me to uh, some of the folks uh, out of in China. Um, interestingly, you know, uh, Carrefour, you know, the Jalafu uh, over there was just uh, in the very beginning of its uh, expansion. Essentially, there were uh, about 13 stores. Uh, the largest one was uh, was in Beijing, uh, and uh, you know, nowadays I think Carrefour has hundreds and hundreds of, of stores across uh, the country. Uh, and um, I, uh, you know, out of uh, all odds, I, I, I landed the uh, internship that you know eventually became a, a job. Uh, and, uh, you know, I haven't, uh, looked back, uh, you know, uh, for the last 20 years I've, I've been abroad essentially. 
And that was to do with e-commerce, right? You were involved in the e-commerce side of, of what Jalafu was doing in China? Yeah, it, it was just, a, you know, the, the beginning of it. And um, uh, I actually, you know, started as a, as, as a clerk, uh, which, uh, you know, could come as a, as a shock after having, you know, studied for uh, uh, for five years and, and you know, having a, a master's in, in business. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's um, uh, it was kind of the, the school of life, you know, learning about uh, how a store functions essentially uh, for the first few months um, and then you know being a force of proposition uh, about new things that we could do uh, and uh, you know back in 2001 and 2 uh, was really the uh, you know, beginning of the e-commerce and internet and including in, in China and in particular uh, some ideas about how would you uh, deliver uh, from uh, a store uh, which uh, Obviously, today sounds uh, sounds very uh, normal, uh, but back then was uh, was a whole uh, you know new endeavor, and so um, I proposed to uh, start essentially uh, delivery uh, out of the store uh, and uh, and built up you know a team of about twenty five people um, that were you know shopping inside of the store, uh, uh, delivering uh, to people, and people were ordering online. So, can you talk a little bit about what it was like back then, as far as how people were shopping online. This is long, sounds like gonna sounds like you know prehistory and, and, and fun, I guess, for, uh, for the oldest yeah. uh, you know uh, the the, uh, the the oldest uh, you know listener to, to this podcast, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously, you know, the internet was kind of wonky back then, uh, and uh, we had to go step by step as well into uh, you know proving that people wanted to get things delivered and that we could do it you know economically. Uh, from uh, from a store perspective and, and margin perspective, and so uh, we uh, we actually started by just you know sending uh, emails uh, to to people that were leaving uh, their contacts in, in store literally uh, and uh, building you know database and sending a PDF of uh, you know things that they could actually order, uh, and uh, so it was very you know manual just uh, exchanging emails. Uh, then inside of the store, uh, we actually uh, you know had a bunch of people. Uh, on rollerblades, uh, you know, believe it or not, uh, that were going around the store to figure out if the products were there, uh, because of course, you know, there was no way to, to check real time, um, uh, you know, what was in the inventory, and of course, there is no warehouse. You know, the warehouse was the store, um, and so uh, the uh, you know the, the you know you can, now you now you can imagine you know like. Um, the store like that in Beijing was, uh, you know, about a thousand employees, you know, and, and you know, two floors and, and you know, thousands and thousands of people uh, at any given time of the day, uh, and people, you know, in rollerblades just running around and uh, uh, trying to, you know, to fetch and fight over, uh, you know, some uh, some chicken or something, uh, and then uh, they were coming back into, uh, you know, a little uh, office, and then. Uh, and then we had a you know a whole brand that we uh, built around it, and we had uh, actual trucks, uh, and those trucks were uh, you know twice a day just going around Beijing and, and, and delivering, um, and that was kind of the beginning of, beginning of it, and and then of course we, we started to to improve on on that uh, with uh, a second phase which uh, was equally horrifying to uh, to everybody uh, because we were sending. A, a dot exe files uh, you know for emails that were opening uh, a browser and then people could just you know select things uh, in there and then you know click send and he was sending an email uh, so go, you know just a, a step further and better uh, before you know six months later we were able to to start to pull off uh, some kind of um, uh, online website you know more uh, properly were you aware of the behind the scenes political, uh, like the business political landscape that was going on? I'm interested in 
Carrefour really invested heavily at a much, much earlier than most other companies. You know, what Best Buy tried to come in in 2012 mm-hmm. or something, you know, and I mean, here, Carrefour predated them by 10, 15 years. Um, were you aware or can you speak to what it was kind of going on as far as anything that they had to deal with as far as hiring talent, uh, leasing the spaces, getting the trucks, dealing just with the entire environment. Was it was it better? Was it easier? Was it more welcoming because not so many foreign companies had tried to come to China? Yeah, um, I, I think um, uh, you know, Carrefour was, was quite, uh, uh, I don't know how special it was, uh, but uh, there was already a, an intent uh, to make it you know, very local. Um, and uh, that was that was a you know a, a very important step. It, it sounds uh, it sounds you know obvious. You go to China, you have to you know localize your brand and localize your operations and, and whatnot. Um, but but back then you know people were still thinking that uh, they could just you know come over and figure things out. And uh, you know we've we've had you know the likes of uh, Groupon and uh, and others you know. Uh, many years later, that that made mistakes in thinking that you can just you know come in and um, and, and and be foreign essentially, um, and uh, you know that's 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 why you know Carrefour became you know Jalufo, which is a uh, a great you know play on on words uh, you know from uh, happy people you know and home and and, and all those concepts, um, and at the same time you know uh, out of the uh, you know, thousand employees, you know, per store, or hundreds of employees per store. Uh, typically, uh, there was you know one foreigner, uh, perhaps the boss, or or zero foreigner uh, already back then. Uh, and uh, and people were trained up, uh, you know, in in stores around the world, or trained up, you know, from from the ground up uh, over there. Um, I do remember uh, that uh, you know most most of the battles uh, were. Uh, around supply, uh, essentially, uh, and getting, uh, you know, from a, uh, there was a lot of competition from local um, supermarkets. Uh, and of course, they were, you know, uh, pre-existing to, to, to call for methods. Uh, and so, so there was a lot of competition there. There was competition with Walmart as well. Um, which did, uh, you know, an excellent uh, um, integration as well uh, into into China and development. Um, for the rest, you know, it, it was a it was a time uh, where. Uh, you could, uh, you know, everything that I pulled off, uh, which was, you know, with, with a small team and, you know, getting uh, getting trucks and getting, you know, uniforms and uh, getting something going essentially from scratch uh, was extremely easy. Um, you know, granted, uh, there was the umbrella of, uh, you know, uh, a powerful uh, brand or, or brand in the making um, that people recognized. But uh, uh, at the same time, it was, uh, it was just, you know, uh, easy to, to, to make things work. After you left Carrefour, you spent a little bit of time with Adidas, but then you ended up with Air France for a significant amount of time. What was Air France's entity or uh, establishment in China? What was it there for? Why was Air France investing in operations in China? Yeah, so it's a very different business um, as uh, you know, the, the product essentially uh, is you know France. Uh, so uh, so most of the uh, like the country know, or the, yes, the country, or tourism yeah. <laughs> for tourism, you know, or business or anything. But uh, right. you know, encouraging the fact that people will go to Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, not only France to be fair, you know, Europe sure. as as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, with some 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 French vibe. Um, and so what um, what, what locally was was happening was uh, you know the, the product is. 
essentially having multiple uh, connections uh, and multiple lines, uh, you know, starting from uh, the major cities, but also exploring how to open new cities and connect them to Europe, essentially. Um, and so uh, when, when I was there, I think, you know, we started with uh, uh, two flights, uh, you know, per, per day, essentially one from Shanghai and one from, uh, from Beijing. Uh, and as I, you know, uh, left, uh, you know, three years later, um, the, uh, you know, there were multiple more cities, uh, you know, with openings of Guangzhou, of uh, um, uh, Chengdu and, and other lines, essentially. Uh, so the product, you know, uh, was was being developed, um, and then uh, a, a big part of it was, uh, you know, to support um, the fact that people will rely uh, more and more on on, uh, on the company, uh, and uh, you know, both from uh, direct consumer uh, perspective as well as from businesses. And so, uh, what I did there was develop a uh, some sort of, of big back office, um, which was uh, supporting the growth of the company. So then after Air France, you went on to join TBWA, and this is where you started to get into more the marketing side of things. Uh, when did that happen? Where did you go? What were your first projects like? Yeah, so uh, the, uh, uh, the reason why um, uh, I went to, to TBWA uh, was because uh, I actually uh, wanted to go to Japan. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to go to Japan back then uh, was because, uh, you know, this uh, was pre-iPhone. Uh, and essentially, you know, uh, back in 2004 and five, um, you know, it was quite obvious that uh, mobile uh, technologies will, you know, become uh, a thing. Uh, and, uh, and Japan was at the forefront of uh, having, you know, applications on, on mobile phones. And so... And this uh, was 2006. You know, about uh, a year before the iPhone even came out. Yes, yes, uh, five and you know, two thousand five, two thousand six, and uh, okay. um, Japan got you know unfortunately wiped out by by the iPhone you know many years later. Mm. Uh, but it was a great uh, you know kind of uh, view into the future uh, about uh, you know uh, mobile usage, mobile apps, uh, mobile marketing, uh, mobile payments, um, and uh, I started to work with uh, multiple brands on uh, you know developing their. Uh, mobile offerings, essentially, and, and, and marketing uh, in uh, in Japan, and, and then also in other countries from Japan. Talk a little bit about what you were doing that brought you back to China. Yes, yeah, so I spent um, uh, about three years in Japan, uh, developing, uh, you know, uh, just like any uh, uh, business, the uh, you know the, the clientele uh, out of Japan, um, and uh, and then there was actually. Uh, an interesting uh, development that, that was happening at CBWA with uh, uh, one of their entities um, that actually needed to uh, support uh, Asian uh, business at large, uh, and in particular, uh, clients out of Japan and Korea and China. Uh, and, uh, you know, think about doing, uh, you know, below, below the line um, and, uh, and above the line, or actually through, you know, through the lines because we actually did some, uh, uh, some, some TV, you know, shots and, and whatnot, but essentially marketing materials and, and campaigns uh, for big brands like Johnson Johnson and, and others, um, you know, Pan-Asian, uh, uh, you know, campaigns and, 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 and support. Um, and so... Uh, what was interesting about this was to try to figure out where, where to go next uh, and what was uh, the place that would uh, actually be able to, uh, uh, to support such an entity that, uh, that was you know, um, good geographically, um, culturally, and able to support those, those three countries at, at once. You ended up going to Dalian. And why Correct. did you choose Dalian? Yes. Um, so, you know, overall, it was quite, um, quite you know, in a, in a way obvious, uh, you know, that... Uh, 
uh, that Tallinn was a good city because uh, you know the the, f- the the free culture slash um, uh, you know languages were represented there. Uh, Japanese uh, were using Tallinn as a as a what, what we used to call BPO, you know, a business process outsourcing uh, centers for quite some time, but also factories. You know, like uh, uh, YKK has one of the, its biggest factory in the world over there, um, and uh, it has also proximity with Korea. Uh, as well as um, uh, you know, cultural minority uh, that was uh, speaking Korean, uh, being really, really you know, uh, Italian is, is just uh, uh, you know a few hundred kilometers far from from North Korea and, and South Korea, of course, on, on the other side. Um, and uh, and of course, it was in China and, and very convenient to fly to, to Shanghai or, or Beijing. Uh, and so that's that's how we came up with uh, uh, you know setting up an office in, uh, in Italian, which uh, obviously not not many you know big foreign businesses uh, uh, did, although, you know, we had, you know, SAP there and, and, and quite a few others, uh, but also really creating um, a huge competitive advantage in terms of uh, uh, being able to service, you know, those clients uh, all throughout Asia. So this is where you met Sean O'Sullivan. And so Sean O'Sullivan, for the listeners who don't know, Sean O'Sullivan, um, this is where SOSV, the accelerated VC, the venture capital firm that you're uh, a general partner at, this is where it all went down. This is, you actually met Sean O'Sullivan of all the places in the world. You met Sean O'Sullivan in Dalian, China. Tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. Uh, just like, uh, you know, any, uh, other good stories, I guess. Uh, uh, it's always about uh, showing up on, on one side. So you know, like you, you may wonder what uh, you know. Moving from uh, I did at that point Shanghai, Beijing, uh, Guangzhou, uh, then Tokyo, and you know back back to China in Italian. Uh, what uh, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and uh, actually, you know, it's it's uh, uh, you know good things happen when you start to, uh, to 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 be true to you know convictions and and uh, trust and, the and as a trust the universe and move forward essentially. Um, and um, uh, and I also you know a bit of luck because uh, uh, Sean was. Uh, uh, back then, running also um, a company on top of his, uh, you know, uh, family office, if you will, um, and uh, and then came to uh, to our office um, because uh, we removed the ceiling. Essentially, so that's, uh, that's the bottom of it because we were running a, you know, a call agency, and you know, we just uh, removed. The it, was the it was the design <laughs> exactly of your office. Exactly, that that got him to, to come over. Um, uh, and uh, but the, the fun story is, of course, he came once, and since I was traveling a lot, I was I wasn't there the first time, uh, and that could be the the end of the story. Uh, but uh, but he came a second time, uh, and so um, and so we uh, uh, we we got to meet you know face to face, and um, uh, he uh, uh, he actually you know j- just literally came to my office, like uh, he didn't even ask for, for permission, um, which are you know things you can do in China, I guess, uh, to some extent. Um, and uh, uh, I still remember uh, you know. Uh, thinking uh, that uh, you know, it was like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, in China, uh, and uh, uh, you know, me answering him that uh, this was, you know, a very difficult endeavor. Okay, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit through this walk down memory lane. Um, it's it's been interesting, but so this is where. Uh, you and I, you and I actually met when you were with eGraphics and, uh, I remember having dinner at your place. I think you were kicking my butt at NBA jam at the time or FIFA, which you just love to destroy people at take no mercy at all. And, um, and you said, Oh, by the way, I think I'm going to be leaving eGraphics. I'm going to join this fund and I'm going to start an accelerator. And I said, you know, what is an accelerator? Uh, and you proceeded to have to tell me, explain to me exactly what an accelerator was. So. 
I want, I, I th- I'm very, very interested in this and I've always described how this went down in, in various ways, probably never getting it absolutely right. You and Sean wanted to start investing in early stage tech in China. And so that's how a conversation devolved into how in the heck were you going to do this? And this conversation was actually happening in 2009. So tell us a little bit about what you were seeing. Why would you want to do this? Why would you want to do something so inherently difficult and be the pioneers of doing it? Tell us a little bit about how that all went down. Yes, yeah, so, so um, uh, I always had a you know uh, a thing for for technology and uh, even startups, and uh, uh, they were you know startups have always been quite close to um, uh, what we've done at CBWA uh, because we uh, you know needed to be at the forefront of technology and in order to provide you know our clients with uh, some uh, um, some perspective on, on what uh, you know uh, they could do and in what uh, what kind of uh, you know. Uh, Future uh, uh, displays and devices, and you know, support they could uh, imagine uh, as well. And so, um, and so, it was it wasn't a, you know a, a big jump um, to think that we wanted to support uh, uh, early stage entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, Sean was an entrepreneur, and, and myself as well. And so, we had a, a, some good uh, you know operational expertise here to um, uh, to provide to uh, to entrepreneurs. Um, doing it in China was actually also because we saw an opportunity to uh, work with talented people. Amazingly, back then there was a huge uh, risk aversion for building companies uh, from scratch. And you know, if you were uh, to be, uh, you know, coming out of uh, of Tsinghua and, and whatnot, um, going into building a startup was uh, was you know borderline madness for for parents in particular. Um, you know, they wanted you to go to. Uh, either you know the government or a state-owned company or you know an international company, uh, and, and being an entrepreneur was kind of you know the last choice that uh, that you could make. Um, and so, uh, what we wanted to do was to convince the entrepreneurs and actually the parents even. And uh, I, I seriously had calls with parents of uh, applicants, you know, to, to the accelerator, and provide them with some sort of uh, you know cocoon where. Um, they could just uh, you know have some money, uh, then uh, then have a group of people, and then you know building sets of resources essentially uh, to support uh, their first step uh, development, and so you know uh, popularizing the fact that being an entrepreneur is okay. You also launched the hardware accelerator hacks. It was the first in the world. It's still the best in the world. Tell us how that came to be. Yeah, actually, yeah, it was both Fleet Motion and Farm Labs as well. That uh, is uh, the 3D printing company, um, uh, where uh, that we you know uh, were the first in, in investors in back then. Uh, and uh, uh, so yeah, so you know we had uh, you know a few investments, uh, even for China Accelerator. There was you know a few hardware companies, if you, you may recall, uh, and. Uh, and you know, like just uh, being uh, being a good investor and on the mission was, uh, you know, the idea was how can we support those, those teams better? Um, and of course, we were you know located in China, uh, and people were calling it you know the, the, the manufacturing uh, uh, you know uh, hub of the world, you know, uh, country. Uh, I thought it was the you know the proper um, thing it was called, but uh, uh, but essentially, or the factory of the world. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but essentially, uh, you know, I took a trip to Shenzhen. Uh, thinking that uh, you know, okay, well, uh, all hardware is in, is in Shenzhen in China, uh, which which isn't true at all. But um, uh, but Shenzhen was, of course, you know, some sort of epicenter, um, uh, not necessarily for manufacturing, but actually for supply chain in particular, um, in terms of electronics, uh, had you know factories surrounding it, um, uh, you know, and but what I saw over there was uh, was actually at a at a very different time, um, uh, and 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 uh, well, what I saw over there was. Uh, something called Shanghai, 
and uh, so Shanghai, uh, which is not really you know a thing anymore today, uh, ten years ago uh, was essentially uh, what people called uh, you know Chinese you know uh, incremental innovation. Uh, and uh, in hardware in particular. So, so Shanghai was, you know, knockoffs first uh, of, uh, you know, uh, phones and, and uh, uh, electronic, you know, appliances. Um, but Shanghai was kind of more than that. It was uh, some sort of, uh, you know, hackery, hackery culture uh, that was uh, mixing things together. Uh, sometimes, you know, it was borderline silliness, like, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that uh, really, uh, you know, encapsulates uh, Shanghai was uh, a phone that had a razor uh, embedded in it. Um, and uh, I remember looking at, at that device, uh, which was, you know, sold for uh, maybe 50 bucks or something, uh, and wondering how that was possible. Uh, and so... Uh, this is when you know I understood that, uh, or kind of you know the, the insight was uh, that well if if uh, you know there are probably you know ten thousand units of this thing that have been made maybe twenty thousand I don't know what's the total number, um, but the fact that it could be done uh, at the first place as a unique product, uh, not in the millions but you know in the, the low ten thousands, um, and that could be you know that cheap uh, meant that there was a system behind it, and I was like oh actually. What if we put startups in, in that environment? You know, are they going to be able to prototype, uh, you know, faster uh, and take their products to market faster uh, while also not going broke? Uh, and so that's that's how the the idea of uh, uh, implementing hacks in, in Shenzhen came up. What were you seeing? If you could look at North American entrepreneurs who you've worked with extensively, uh, and then Chinese entrepreneurs who you've worked with extensively. What are the what are the similarities? What are the differences? What are the pros and cons of both? Yeah, actually, it's quite interesting because we, uh, you know, never been an afterthought, but we ended up having you know ten to twenty percent of uh, every batches, you know, being uh, being Chinese, and the rest being you know foreign at large. Uh, typically, you know, maybe fifty percent uh, North Americans and uh, twenty or thirty percent you know Europeans and, and whatnot. You know, first of all, it was it was great because uh, you could really have um, you know those very different cultures on, on, on the one roof, but also, you know, business cultures, essentially, uh, in one, on one side, getting things done, um, on the other, you know, selling things and communicating them. And um, we, uh, uh, you know, uh, th there are some cliches that, uh, that uh, you know, were, were quite obvious, uh, I think, back then, but uh, uh, that, uh, that now are less and less obvious, essentially, about, okay, great, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, entrepreneurs in, in China, uh, can uh, you know be uh, proactive and, and build stuff, but uh, uh, they have a hard time to you know uh, sell abroad essentially. Um, and uh, for foreigners, you know, going into China is always very difficult, uh, and, um, and and getting things done essentially is almost impossible. And so we we, we spent quite some time, you know, in trying to uh, make the environment smooth uh, and, and kind of take the best out of both worlds. Um, and, um, uh, and you know, iterating uh, on, on on the way we do uh, things. So you know, just to give um, uh, you know an idea of, of how it looks today, uh, we have about uh, you know fifty thousand square feet of, uh, of an office space, uh, which is shared by you know uh, several hundred entrepreneurs essentially in, in the room, um, and they are all able to to exchange about uh, you know their their best you know uh, 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 suppliers or the, the best way to uh, to do things or you know the best you know, investors etc um, which is a, a a very useful way for for them to to develop their their, their company and um, over time uh, if the teams are you know spending you know enough uh, time on the ground and you know most 
people are spending you know at least you know six months to a year now at our office uh if they are foreigners and you know same thing for of course the, the, the chinese being there um uh you know they, they start to develop the on one side the chinese dna uh of uh you know being uh uh you know extremely uh, productive um and uh i would say nowadays the attention to detail uh is tremendous and then on the other side you know they can you know learn about um how to communicate about their offering better uh, and open up uh, some uh, some distribution channels, um, you know, on the other side of um, uh, of the world. Um, so uh, yeah, it's been quite quite exciting uh, in that matter. Why was it valuable to launch Hacks in Shenzhen? Why was it important to be there in the world's factory? Yeah, the um, the, the way I describe it is, uh, you know, there is a very famous quote from. Uh, Milton Friedman about uh, you know the the world is flat, uh, which means that uh, you know essentially you have uh, uh, some sort of commoditization of the world and you know everywhere is the same or everything is global, um, which is uh, you know uh, very valid. If if I were to build on on that, uh, you know I would say that uh, uh, you know there are actually spikes uh, that are you know uh, existing around the world, um, and uh, the first one was actually Silicon Valley, uh, you know, and there is. You know, no uh, mistake that uh, this place became you know an epicenter essentially of the world nowadays, um, uh, and is uh, you know powerhouse in terms of capital and you know, technology at large, um, and, uh, and 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 therefore it's a, it's a different ecosystem. Uh, and uh, every time I think about ecosystem, I think about uh, essentially you know imagine yourself uh, you are building a certain type of company, and you go to a certain place in the world. And uh, the way to recognize if an ecosystem uh, or you know one of those spikes essentially exists is if you are automatically augmented by just you know being physically there. And uh, when you think about that, there are very very few people on the planet where this is true. Um, and that will depend, of course, of your industry and the type of product that you propose. But uh, in the case of uh, Silicon Valley, you know there is no doubt that you come here with you know any kind of startup, but in particular you know software or consumer uh, uh, you know software and etc. Um, and you will find uh, that uh, the value of your company is augmented because there are lots of you know, people giving you the vaccines to get started with. There's also, of course, you know, the capital that is available to fund you, et cetera, et cetera, and talent, of course, to, to join your company. And um, essentially, you know, the same can be said uh, about Shenzhen when it comes down to hardware entrepreneurs. Uh, just by being there, uh, they are automatically augmented by the ecosystem surrounding them. Uh, you know, the supply chain, um, you know, I call that the long, the long tail of the supply chain. Essentially, you know, the fact that you have really big factories uh, that startups don't use, uh, down to the you know, mom and pop shop have, you know, machine shops for injection molding or CNC machining, uh, just one or two persons doing, doing work, uh, but being extremely flexible and fast and reliable uh, that can, you know, uh, essentially uh, take you from uh, your uh, data to, to a real product uh, and holding your hands through that, uh, not getting frustrated, you know, too much for it, uh, hopefully. Uh, and, and, um, and, and, you know, then the supply chain, you know, uh, uh, in electronics uh, being available. And then, of course, the knowledge of the people you know, in building things. Uh, so, you know, same as uh, Silicon Valley, just different uh, here. And uh, I would expect that, you know, those spikes essentially... Uh, will keep on going. You know, there will be, uh, there are, you know, obvious epicenters for certain things, you know, in fashion or in finance and whatnot. Uh, but when it comes down to technology companies, um, I would think that uh, we'll see, you know, the rise of, of certain cities uh, that will uh, shine and, and be different and that people will want to go to, uh, you know, in order to build their company, at least momentarily, uh, uh, but, you know, also for the long term. Hacks 
graduates have had incredible success on Kickstarter. And I want you to talk a little bit about the impact of uh, the crowdfunding campaigns, um, especially with regards to the world of hardware. And once uh, they were successful on fulfilling uh, their campaign so that it wasn't a scam pain, uh, was that it? Was success done and dusted? Were they already successful or was there just another uh, trough of sorrow they needed to get through after that? Yeah, so um, we, uh, uh, you know, funny enough, you know, we're, we're of course well known for doing crowdfunding campaigns, I guess, because we've done, you know, over 100. Uh, and uh, we have, I think, you know, 13 or 14 of the top 100 of all time. Um, and, um, but actually, you know, uh, consumer hardware is only like 20% of what we do. And the majority nowadays is, is you know, B2B and, uh, and uh, health related. Um, but, um, you know, that aside, uh, we've of course you know been uh, exposed to uh, uh, to crowdfunding at large, uh, crowd equity as well, which is a different thing. But at least on the crowdfunding side, uh, you know the fact that uh, the companies will uh, launch uh, the product and you know and see if there is an interest essentially uh, was uh, was always very uh, you know beneficial. Uh, and uh, you know uh, if if I, if I will redo everything, uh, I will say that. Uh, it's, it's a good way to test if there is some, some product market fit to some extent. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, we always were reminded, I would say that uh, um, the, the, the types of consumer buying into crowdfunding uh, are early adopters. And uh, as such, there is, you know, a little bit to, to read into it. Uh, and actually, through the, you know, the hundred and then some uh, campaigns that we've done, it's quite obvious that you can, you know, do a campaign that does a hundred thousand uh, dollars and become a really successful, you know, company. And actually, uh, you know, funny enough, uh, one of those uh, is not one of ours, unfortunately, but very well known fact is uh, uh, Peloton uh, actually launched on Kickstarter, believe it or not, uh, you know, back in, in 2010 or 11 or something. Uh, did a, you know, back then a good campaign, you know, across a uh, hundred k, um, but uh, it took much more, uh, you know. Uh, to, to, to make it a, a successful company. Um, and on the other hand, of course, you know, uh, you can pick the, the, the biggest uh, consumer hardware campaign of all time, which is uh, Cooler Schooler, which blew up $10 million twice, right? Uh, that folded uh, just, you know, three or four months ago uh, and is, is uh, you know, a non-existing company anymore. Uh, so yeah, you cannot, you know, read too much in, into crowdfunding uh, uh, as much as, uh, you know, you would like to. So what happens if you are successful in your crowdfunding? And I know this is where hacks played a large role because you could return and then you could manufacture and and ship and actually uh, fulfill your all your promises from your campaign. But what happens next? You've fulfilled, a, you've had a successful Kickstarter campaign, but how do you actually become a successful company? Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, you know, something is to be said about uh, all the backers uh, of those uh, those campaigns, uh, and uh, they are. I, I don't know how much they they realize that they've taken, uh, you know, their face into uh, those uh, little companies and those stories um, are an amazing tool uh, and amazing for. Uh, you know, innovation at large and, and uh, the lives of those entrepreneurs and those companies. Um, and yes, you know, sometimes things don't, don't turn, you know, as expected. Um, but, uh, you know, when I back campaigns and, you know, I do uh, that quite a bit and not only hacks companies, um, I expect to get a good story out of it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that's it. Uh, and, but, um, uh, they play, you know, that plays still a, a very important role in the lives of some of those entrepreneurs and those companies. Um, and so, uh, so, so backers, you know, keep on backing, I think is, is important for everybody. Um, 
what's next is actually extremely difficult uh, because uh, those companies most likely will still need to fundraise, uh, you know, depending on, on where they land at with their goals and whatnot. Uh, there is still, you know, uh, limited cash because building a product still costs money and, you know, tooling costs and shipping costs and all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, you can have a good economics and still be tight at the end of the day um, uh, with it. Uh, and uh, it's very rare to have companies that, you know, really uh, have their things together and are able to uh, essentially break even on their own operations uh, with, a, with a limited team. Um, that said, you know, that's uh, definitely where uh, those companies want to, uh, want to go uh, to because, uh, you know, nowadays um, getting um, investors excited about consumer hardware is, is difficult. Uh, and, uh, you know, most will expect to, to get, you know, some sort of, of recurring uh, revenue uh, coming up. But, uh, but that takes, you know, uh, quite, a, quite a bit of time uh, to, uh, uh, to prove out. And so, you know, the likelihood is that the, the, those companies will uh, raise venture money. Uh, and then they are, you know, kind of on, a, on that treadmill uh, where they have to uh, ship their product uh, the first uh, time around. Uh, and then, you know, immediately after... Uh, kind of have a V2, uh, which is, you know, removing a lot of the uh, shortcomings of, of V1, you know, like, you know, same thing happened with the iPhone. And, you know, you remember probably the antenna issues on one side or the uh, uh, the folding phone on the other. And, you know, uh, so so it's never perfect the first time. And so uh, companies you know, need to get in onto a V2 and then closer to product market fit with it. Uh, and then continue on developing a portfolio of products because uh, it's very rare that a consumer uh, company can survive just on, on one product. I want to ask you one last question. Uh, you are a trademarked visionary punk. Uh, where is the next big company coming from? The next big company, actually, uh, you know, I, I tried to, to to make it happen many many years ago at Hacks. Hilariously, we had a uh, two companies facing each other, and uh, we had a very small office back in 2012. Uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, 100 uh, square meters or something. I uh, and uh, and uh, uh, and we had two companies there. One was called. Um, uh, Yilink, uh, and the other one was called uh, Spark. Uh, and uh, during the, the, the hacks programs, you know, Spark was uh, uh, originally working on some smart lighting solutions. It was an American company, uh, and Yilink uh, was uh, working on uh, a platform for IoT uh, objects. Uh, and they were Chinese, and uh, there were some some tremendous affinities between uh, you know the, those two companies. Uh, so much so that uh, for you know a reason that's still enough to this day, um, uh, Spark uh, became a, a purveyor of uh, IoT products, a platform, uh, and Yiling became Yilight and did smart lighting in China. Uh, so they literally crossed each other, you know, in terms of trajectory. Um, and uh, today, you know, uh, Spark is called Particle. Uh, it's a really large uh, company out of in San Francisco. Um, and uh, Yeelight now is, uh, is the largest smart lighting company uh, in China, and that's you know uh, part of the, uh, the the Xiaomi empire, if you will. Uh, but those two were like literally four people facing each other in the office. Um, and uh, I actually tried to you know to, to marry them together uh, back then. Um, of course, it's really difficult to do, you know, at those early stages, they have, you know, their own ideas and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, one, one you know, thing I know that came out of this is uh, uh, the fact that, you know, the next big thing uh, will come from the perfect bend between, uh, you know, that U.S. feel uh, and that, you know, China feel uh, together under one roof. 
literally, you know, leveraging uh, the best out of uh, both cultures uh, and strength. Uh, and I'm, you know, looking forward to you know, see that um, in the future. Yes, I remember the uh, Kickstarter campaign video from Spark, uh, which was absolutely hilarious. I remember when you yep. sent it to me for the first time. You actually have to see this. There's so much, so much um, subtle uh, humor going on, especially when they were showing that they were running uh, some some video ads in China, but running Mexican music in the background. And yes. <laughs> so many hilarious parts of it. Uh, it just they were they were pretty hilarious guys, and there was a lot of fun. Those are, those were just the great days, man. Running those accelerators, so fun. Yep. Thank you, buddy. Thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, why don't you let our audience know if they want to get in touch or apply or just follow along with anything SOSV or yourself is doing, where can they do that? Uh, yes, uh, very simple. Uh, www.sosv.com. Uh, I think, uh, you know, every programs are there and, you know, don't hesitate to uh, shoot me uh, some notes on, on LinkedIn. Excellent. Cyril, thanks very much for coming on the show once again. And uh, it's been a true honor and I hope to uh, have you back on again soon. Same here. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.